like it when people clap when I'm walking up, but I knew that wasn't real. <laughs> that was great. Good job. Good. good. I, I told the choir this morning they might have to carry things because the speaker was kind of weak, and I don't know if they knew I was the speaker, but anyway. So, I came prepared with uh, puzzles. I, we spent the night last night with my granddaughter. She lives about a mile from here, so close by, and, and with her parents, too, but uh, it was mainly to see her. She's two and three quarters of a year old. When you're, you know, when you're two and three, a quarter of a year means a lot, you know? So um, one of her favorite things is playing with puzzles of all types, and uh, we found a type of puzzle that her and I are about on the same level with. These are called four-in-a-box puzzles. I had never seen them before, but they have four, four puzzles in this box, one of them has four pieces, one has six pieces, one has nine pieces, and one has 12 pieces. Now, I don't know about you, but when I put together a puzzle, I always start with the outside pieces. And so when you're putting together a four-piece puzzle, the outside's all you got. It's four outside pieces. Picture of a couple little penguins if you can't see that. Uh, they get more difficult. When you get to that 12-piece puzzle, you know, it's, it's a little challenging, but uh, between Virginia and my granddaughter and I, we can usually figure it out. But uh, Virginia loves puzzles. And, and I love helping her with puzzles. Again, we're about on the same level of ability, so it works out pretty good. Now, there are people I know, and some of you, put together big, huge puzzles with a thousand pieces and jigsaw puzzles and things like that. I can't understand that. I, I couldn't sit for hours. I would get so frustrated with that thing before I finished it, I would, I would just have to leave. And then there are people that turn them upside down and do them without the picture. I don't know if any of y'all are that kind of people, but if you are, you need help. <laughs> yeah. Puzzles are visual. There are pictures on the box. In this case, there's four pictures. In most puzzles, there's that one picture, and you can use that picture to put together the puzzle, but I'm not that kind of puzzle person. I'm not good at, at putting together complex puzzles. But the reason I thought about puzzles and about those pictures on the box is I want to talk today about vision. Now when I say vision, I don't mean physical vision. Last summer, not this past summer, but a little over a year ago, I had cataract surgery. I'm not going to ask anybody else has. I, I was in one church and I asked almost everybody there raised their hand. But I had cataract surgery, and I can see better than I could before I had the surgery. It's a simple surgery. Um, but that's not the kind of vision I'm talking about today. I want to talk about spiritual vision. You know, I really believe that God has a dream for King's Grant and for the King's Grant community. I really believe God has a picture in mind of what he wants this church to look like five years from now, ten years from now, and on and on. The question we have is, what does that picture look like? I, I could ask it this way. If God had his way, what would this church look like in the future? And some of you are going to think, well, God does have his way, doesn't he? I want to be nice here. No. God doesn't always have his way with us because we're sinful. Churches are full of sinful people. Look around you. Some of these people you look at are sinners. Most of them are. All of them are. 
<laughs> you are a sinner. I am a sinner. So God has a picture of what he thinks the church in the future, or he wants the church in the future to look like, but oftentimes we're the ones that mess up that vision. And I think it's our duty to try to discover what that vision is God has for us and try to work into that vision. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible about vision is Proverbs 29, 18. And I learned it in the King James Bible when I was a kid. And it goes like this, where there is no vision, the people perish. What I learned later is that word perish doesn't mean what it did in King James time. To us, usually perish means somebody's going to die. They're going to be dead. (laughs) Where there is no vision, the people are going to die. That's not what that verse means. The word perish back then didn't mean necessarily that someone's going to die. It just means things weren't going to be right. So one of the modern versions, the message version of that verse says, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. I like that version. I can understand that a little bit better. Because I think that's the way we do in church sometimes. We stumble all over ourselves. So a church that doesn't have a picture of where God wants them to be going is going to tend to stumble all over ourselves. We may not die, we may not perish in the way we mean perish, but we're going to at least be like those people that put those puzzles together upside down where they can't see the picture. It takes a long time to do that. So in a congregation where there is a clear vision, the people are tending to be moving in the same direction and not stumbling all over each other. I think about music. In music, we use the term resonance. Now, what if Greg had gotten up here this morning and said, we're going to sing, now everybody just sing your favorite song. We'd all been happy because we got to sing our favorite song, but it would have sounded terrible, wouldn't it? Because it would have just sounded like noise if everybody was singing something different. Resonance is when we're all singing off the same page, right? Yeah. That's what vision is like, when we're all singing off the same page, off the same screen, off the same book. We get resonance. It starts to sound like something. And that's what vision is like. It's not like a lot of noise. Our goal should be to be going in the same direction with each other. Now, Jeremiah, the guy we're going to be talking about here today, he lived in crazy times. And I'm going to talk about his times in a few minutes. But haven't we been living through some crazy times too? You know... COVID alone, without anything else, COVID alone has thrown us into crazy times. And it hasn't completely gone away yet. We're acting like it's gone away. One of my pastor friends called me this weekend. Chuck, I've tested positive. I'm going to be quarantining for the next several days. You know, I've had family members last week with COVID. Fortunately, God bless, thank you God, that that it's not as bad as it was as far as the symptoms with most people. But we've been through some craziness with that. And then you take on top of all of that, you take where King's Grant is, looking for a pastor. Looking for a worship, a music pastor as well. These are crazy times. We, We can admit that. It's okay to admit it. But my point today, the thing that I came to talk about is that God is still in charge. Even though we're going through a lot of craziness, God is still in charge. Listen again to those words. 
while Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, it says, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. This is what he said. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you did not know. And then a couple verses later, he goes, nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. The it he's talking about was the city of Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I will heal my people and I will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and rebuild them as they were before. So Jeremiah lived in this crazy time. And this passage, particularly that verse 3, is, is one of those popular passages. You've probably heard it before. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you unsearchable things you did not know. That's the kind of thing people put on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or something like that. That's what, that's what God's message was to the people going through a really, really crazy time. That if they would call on him, even in desperate times, even in crazy times, he will answer. Now, in this particular case, the nation of Judah, where Jeremiah lived, was getting ready to be destroyed by another country, the Babylonians, which today would be like Iraq, that area of the world. And things were going to get worse before they got better. Now, the passage mentioned, I don't know if you noticed that, this was the second time that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was under arrest. I don't know about you, when I see that, i got to go back and when was the first time? So let's go back one chapter to chapter 32 and look at what it says there. Because this would be the first time God came to him, so if you're Look in your Bible, just back up one page. Verse 1 says, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was in the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the royal palace of Judah. A lot going on in those verses. Now back then... They told time by who was king and what year of his, of his rule they were in. So they didn't say it was March 23rd. They said, well, it was the 12th year of king whoever. So what we already know from this passage from the very beginning, when they said it was the 10th year of Zedekiah, this was a real story. This wasn't made up. This wasn't imaginary. I don't know what you think about the Bible, but, but stories in the Bible are real. These were real people going through real stuff. And these verses sort of set the scene of what was going on here. The Babylonians, which was this huge, it was, they were like the strongest nation in the world at that time, they were getting ready to destroy Jerusalem. And it says they were besieging the city. Now what does that mean? Back then, big cities were built with a wall around them. And so if the enemy came, everybody got inside the wall and fought and just waited until the other people gave up and left. So what, what the other people would do, the people doing the besieging, in this case the Babylonians, which was this huge army, they surrounded the city and they started to build ramps up that wall so they can come in and take the city. That's what's going on when this story takes place. Jeremiah is under arrest. He's being held outside of the palace. What was he under arrest for? It said it right there. Because he 
was talking bad about his own country and about his own king. He even prophesied that bad things were going to happen, that the Babylonians are going to win. Here's the next few verses of that chapter. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? Why do you talk like you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I am about to give the city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. And then he continues, he says, if you fight against Babylon, you will not succeed. There's the proof that Jeremiah was talking bad about his own country, about his own king. He had said, God has told me, we're not going to win this war. Things are going to get worse before they get better. So Jeremiah is just warning him, this is what's going to happen soon. Then in verse 6, Jeremiah said, the, the word of the Lord came to me. Now this is the first time. Remember the passage we read at the beginning said the second time? This is the first time the word of the Lord came to him. He said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anatoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. So God comes to, to Jeremiah and says, your uncle's coming to town. Now, Anatoth is just north of Jerusalem. It's not too far away. And, this, and, and Jeremiah would have known, known about this piece of property. That's where he you know, lived growing up, and he knew about it. And, it's, and God says, he's going to come, and he's going to ask you to buy this property. Now, the rules back then were like this. If you owned a piece of property, and you wanted to sell it, you went to your closest kin person, your next of kin, and asked them would they buy it. If they couldn't buy it, you'd go to another one, a cousin or an uncle or someone else in the family. The idea was to keep land in the family. So if you owned land and you had to sell it for whatever reason, you wanted to keep it in the family. And that's what this guy was going to do. He was going to come and he's going to say, I want you to buy this land. Now, here's the problem. Land at this point in time outside of Jerusalem was kind of worthless because the Babylonians were all over the place. And they were getting ready to destroy Jerusalem. And here's this uncle going to come to Jeremiah and say, I want you to buy this worthless piece of property. Then verse 8 says, Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, Buy my field at Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourselves. Jeremiah says, I know, I knew then that this was the word from the Lord. So God had said, this is going to happen, and then it happened. So if one night you have a dream and God tells you in your dream that something's going to happen, and the next day it happens, you can pretty well guarantee that it's a word from the Lord. That's what Jeremiah did. He said, I know it was God talking now. So then it goes on in verses 9 through 12, and I won't read them, but you can read them at another time if you'd like to, and talks about the legal stuff, about buying land. And it said, you know, so I bought the field, I paid, it said he paid 17 shekels of silver for it. I tried to research and see how much that would be worth today, 
And there's no way of knowing because shekels were worth different things at different times and they, they couldn't tell you right at that particular time how much it was worth. I don't know if this was a lot of money or a little money. I assume it was a pretty good amount of money. And they took the deed and they signed it and they sealed it and they, took a, they had an unsealed deed. They had all this stuff that they did. And, and they, they did all of that by the law, legal, to do it the right way. And then it says in verse 13, In their presence I gave Baruch these instructions. Now Baruch was the guy that worked for the government that when you, when you did a deed, you gave it to him to hold, okay? It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Now, Back then, if you wanted to preserve some papers, you put them in clay jars. That was their best place to put stuff if you wanted it to last a long time. You remember the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Remember that story? A, a, a guy found these clay jars out near the Dead Sea, and inside were all these old documents that were a lot of the scriptures and things like that from 2,000 years ago. So that's what Jeremiah says. I want you to put these deeds in clay jars. I want you to... Put them somewhere that they're going to last. They're going to be around for a long time. And then the punchline is because land is going to be bought and sold again in the future here. Now, things are bad right now is what Jeremiah was saying. But in the future, there's going to come a time when it's going to be important who owns what because we'll be back in the land. That was sort of the punchline of that whole story. Then several verses later down in verse 38 says... God says, they will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will go well with them and for their children after them. What God says is, do what I tell you and things will be okay. Even though things look bad right now, do what I tell you and eventually you'll see that it's going to be okay. And he says, I will give you singleness of heart and action. God was still in charge. Even though things were bad, even though the Babylonians were getting ready to destroy Jerusalem and they would be taken into exile for years and years and then come back later and restart their land, God was still in charge. God, this did not surprise God that the Babylonians showed up. He knew what was going on. And what he said was, don't worry. Things are going to be better. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point, things are going to get back to the way they should be. God was still in charge. So that passage, not the one in chapter 32 that we just read, but back to the first passage that we read earlier in chapter 33, God says, call to me. Call to me. What he means by call to me is you need to understand that what happens next is not up to you. What happens next is up to me. You need to call on God. And God is telling his people, this is what you need to do. Don't worry about the Babylonians. Things are going to get bad, but you need to call to me. And then God says, if you do, I will bring you health and healing. Now let me tell you, 
we tend to be like this. We tend to want the health and the healing without the call to me. God is saying, you start by calling to me. Start by admitting that I'm in charge, not you. Start by coming and saying, God, we don't know what to do next. Call to me and I will answer you. I will bring health and healing. But boy, aren't we the other way around? Don't we want the health and healing now? You know, without having to call on God for it. Don't we want to come up with some great plan that's going to give us everything we want without God? I think when we're honest, that's the way we act a lot of times. We don't call on Him first. You know, I think this, this message was both to individual people and at that time it was to the whole nation as well. I think today God talks that way to us. I think God gives us a message that's for us as individuals, but it's also for us as a congregation. So let me ask you this. As individuals, what do we need to do? What do I need to do to bring health and healing to me? Not to that person down the aisle. You, know, you can point at someone else and say, that person down there, they need help. They need help and healing. They need health and healing. But I think we start, when we call on God, we say, God, what do I need to have spiritual health and spiritual healing? What is it that I'm not doing the way I should be doing? What is my part in this whole process where King's Grant is right now? What is God calling on me to do to help bring health and healing? See, I think it begins with individuals. I think we need to ask that question to ourselves first. Don't worry about everybody else. Don't worry about that person across the aisle from you. Don't worry about that person that you know you can think of, that you think is, is, is causing trouble. Start with this. God, what do I need to do? He says, call on me. What do I need to do before you can give me spiritual health and spiritual healing? That's where it begins. And then, once individuals have done that, then the congregation, I think, asks the same question. God, what can we do that will lead to the health and the healing that you have for us? This is a hard time for a church. I work with churches. I work with 60 churches over on the peninsula. And right now I'm working with two or three churches that are going through, you know, looking for a pastor and those kind of transitions. It's a tough time. And I don't mean to downplay that at all. But if we try to do it without calling on God, we're really going to mess ourselves up. It begins with calling on God. Then he'll bring the health and the healing, the singleness of heart and action. I like that term, singleness of heart and action. So when people look at Kings Grant Church, they'll say, you know, that bunch, they seem to have the same thing on their minds, singleness of heart and actions. They seem to be acting together, working together for what God wants to do with them. You see, the point is, God is still 
in charge. He's still in control. We tend to forget that. Again, we tend to do things our way, but God is in charge. And I believe his message to us is just like his message to Jeremiah 3,000 years ago. Call on me, and then I will show you things you didn't know. But you can't see those things if you don't call on God. He promises health and healing, and that means spiritual health, spiritual healing. I believe God has a great future for King's Grant, just like it's had a great past. I believe that God already knows what he wants the future of King's Grant to look like. I really believe God already has the person in mind that needs to come in as pastor. I believe God has the person in mind that needs to come in and lead the music. I believe all those things in God's vision are clear. But we can mess that up. If we're not calling on God first and starting there, we're not going to, we'll miss it. We'll miss what God has for us. And I see churches a lot that that happens to. They don't say, we're not going to listen to God. They don't say that, but they don't listen to God. And I believe that's where we start saying, God, we don't know what to do but you do. Help us. Let's pray.